So as you, uh, as you see, um, we had a wonderful week of VBS. The theme was Keepers of the Kingdom, Standing Strong in Today's Battle for Truth, um, and obviously a, a bit of a medieval theme. Um, it really was an amazing week. We, uh, we actually had 62 leaders involved, which was the most ever for any VBS we've ever done. Um, in fact, watch this. If you were involved in any way, youth, adults, helping with VBS in any capacity, please stand. How about that? Give them a hand. So, it's outstanding. And so these are the people that have really poured into our children, um, not just the children here at Grace, but children from outside of Grace as well. Um, we actually had uh, 64 kids total, which again was the largest we've ever had, um, with our biggest night being 57, which is not the biggest night we've ever had. Um, but 61% of those, 39 kids, were from outside of Grace. So this really is our, one of our biggest outreaches of the year. Our mission for the week, um, once again, uh, we, we deviated last, we, last year because of the theme, but we went back to the Children's Hunger Fund, and uh, we collected uh, money for meals. Actually, um, one quarter, um, and the kids are, uh, really understand this, it's wonderful, the one quarter will buy a meal, but it will also um, have the opportunity for local pastors to go and to share the gospel as well. Um, we actually collected 620, um, I'm sorry, 1,620 and 39 uh, cents, um, which was enough for 6,481 meals. Again, that was the largest we had ever done as well. And some of the kids actually save all year long um, just to be able to come and to bring that at VBS. So it's exciting. So with that, um, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dig into God's Word, uh, specifically um, Ephesians 6, um, verses 10 to 20 on the uh, full armor of God. Let me pray. Father, we do uh, thank you, and we praise you for the week that we've had. Father, I thank you for the, uh, the adults and the, the youth who, uh, per, who led this VBS, Lord, and the VBS is every bit as much about that as it is about ministering to the children. It's ministering to all generations, through all generations. And uh, the VBS week is the perfect model for where we see that happening in a church that loves you and a church that loves the next generation and wants to pour in the, into them, Lord, that they might know you. We thank you. We give you all the praise for that. We pray for each and every child who participated as well, those here at Grace and those outside. We pray for the seeds of the gospel that were planted um, this week. Father, we pray, uh, um, I, I think uh, specifically of the, the letter, literally a five-page letter that Melissa uh, wrote to each and every student, um, sharing clearly the gospel message to them um, in a way that went beyond what was taught in the classroom. Father, we, uh, we're grateful for that. We pray that those seeds that were planted will grow much fruit over a lifetime that you would be praised and that you would be glorified and that each and every one of these child would come to you, um, Lord, in tr faith and trust uh, for their salvation in you and in you alone. Father, um, I pray for the, the uh, preaching of your word here. I pray, Lord, that you would give me an anointing to speak clearly um, these truths and, Lord, that we would be uh, um, 
molded and transformed through them by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so one of the uh, key principles, and you actually saw it in the very first song that uh, they did, um, that Eric and Katie, Matt, and uh, they all did. Um, One of the key principles that was taught this week is the reality that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of light, which is ruled by God, and the kingdom of darkness, which is ruled by Satan. And those kingdoms are constantly at war with one another. The battle is fierce. We're not born into the kingdom of God. Rather, due to the sin of Adam and the curse, we are born into the kingdom of darkness. And it's only through faith alone in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross that we are transferred into the kingdom of light and adopted as sons and daughters of the one true King. And though the battle rages, these are not equal kingdoms. Satan is not a foe who confounds God. He um, does not catch him by surprise, nor does he match him in power. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and he is good. Satan is none of those things. The victory is sure. In fact, the victory was won at the cross. I've read to the end of the book. God wins. Of that you can be sure. Of that you can be sure. But even though the victory is certain, battles continue to be fought on many fronts. The enemy is formidable, and they are many. And as God begins to bless, Satan begins to attack. And if you're living a life in obedience to the Lord, if you're effective in ministry, you can be certain that you will face opposition from the enemy. You can be absolutely certain of that. In your own strength and with your own resolve, you are no match for this army. You will be overrun. But thankfully, you don't stand alone using your own resources. God has given you everything you need to stand firm against the enemy. His power is made perfect in our weakness. He's given us his armor to protect us on the field of battle. He's given us his sword to defend the kingdom of God. So if you haven't already, uh, turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 20. Now, prior warning, if I were teaching this as a, preaching this as a sermon series, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 would be four messages. All right, not one. It would be four messages. Today we're going to try and cover it all, and it will be tight. Um, The passage begins with the command to stand strong. The command to stand strong. It it has the means that God has provided us to do exactly that, and then the reality of the enemy that we face. All right? Passage begins. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." Verses 10 to 13. First, the command. 
God's Word commands us to be strong. Be strong. We know that the adversary's attacks will come. We know that we're in a spiritual battle. We need to engage in the the battle with intentionality rather than passivity. So many of us aren't even engaged in the battle. But Paul doesn't give the command without also supplying the means by which we're to do so. He says we are to be strong in the Lord, in the Lord, and in the strength of His might. The command is given to believers, to disciples of Christ, to those who are in Him, and therefore are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and have access to His unlimited power and resources. Earlier in the same book, Ephesians 1, verses 19 to 20, Paul referred to that same might as the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. That same power, that same power is available to us as we stand strong in the Lord. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 God said the same thing to Joshua. He said, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. But listen to this. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. So the ability to stand firm is always, always linked in the Old Testament and in the New to the power and the presence of God. Okay? It's His strength. The believer is to stand by putting on the whole armor of God. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians um, from a prison in Rome. And more than likely, as he wrote this book, he was chained to a Roman soldier. And the Holy Spirit divinely inspired Paul to see an analogy between the armor that was worn by a Roman soldier and God's provision for his people as they battle the kingdom of darkness. The recipients of the letter, the Ephesians, um, being on a major trade route in the Roman Empire, would also be intimately familiar with the gear worn by the soldiers. And they would readily understand Paul's meaning. Okay? He's describing something they're very familiar with. We have to wrap our brains around it. The purpose for donning the whole armor of God is that a child of God would be equipped to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's a very diabolical nature to Satan's schemes. Scripture describes him as a murderer from the beginning who does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. He is the adversary, a, the slanderer, a tempter, the accuser of the brethren, and the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. passage continues, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, verse 12. 
I said earlier that the enemy is formidable, and they are many. We not only contend with the devil, but with a host of demons, fallen angels, spiritual forces that are ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. Just take a look. Take a look at the world around us. Take a look at the world that we see today. Everywhere we look, we see tremendous evil at work. And while most of that is caused by the sinfulness and the depravity of man, there are unseen forces behind it, leading the world into the abyss. Our greatest enemy is not the world we see, as corrupt and wicked as it is, but the world we can't see. The world we can't see. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, James 4, 7. So given the reality of the enemy we face, Paul comes back to the initial command um, in verse 13. He says, therefore, based on the reality of the enemy we face, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Three times, three times in these early verses, the Apostle Paul tells us to stand. Verses 11, 13, and 14. Four four times, if you count the word withstand here in verse 13, which has the exact same meaning. Now, good hermeneutical principle is that whenever you see repetition like this, it's important. It's important. Take note. Go back and figure out why. Using the armor that God himself supplies, we are to stand firm and resolute in the battle. We are to be unwavering, knowing that our strength and power does not come from ourselves, but from the King of Kings, who gives us everything we need to live for him. Our job is to stand. The victory belongs to the Lord. I love this quote from John MacArthur who says, The greatest joys come in the greatest victories. And the greatest victories come from the greatest battles. When they are fought in the power and with the armor of the Lord. The greatest victories come from the greatest battles. So stand firm in Him in all circumstances and watch him secure the victory. And when he does, then he rightly receives all of the glory. Paul moves from the uh, command to stand firm against the devil and his minions to a description of the armor of God in verses 14 to 17. We're going to look at each one in turn, but before we do, let me read the full description. Okay? Verses 14 to 17. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There are six pieces of armor that are described in the whole armor of God. The belt, the breastplate, 
the shoes, the shield, the helmet, and the sword. And we sang about many of those today. And I find an interesting distinction in the fact that the first three are to be put on, while the second three are to be taken up. What's that distinction? Is it a major distinction? I believe that the first three are to be put on so that the child of God is always ready. Always ready. Always prepared. Ready at a moment's notice to engage in the battle. We never know when Satan will attack. We are to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Put the armor on to be prepared. The second three pieces, the shield, the helmet, and the sword, are to be taken up in order to engage in the battle itself. They are the weapons of war. They are the shield that's used to extinguish the arrows of the evil one, the helmet that protects in battle, and the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon that is used to engage in close combat. So the first piece of armor is the belt of truth. The ESV says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Uh, Verse uh, 14a. I prefer the NASB in this case, which says, Stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth. The word gird has, a mul- has multiple layers of meaning. On the one hand, it means to prepare oneself for action. Second meaning is to encircle or bind with a flexible band, such as a belt, to make it fast or secure. Both meanings are definitely at play here. Roman soldier wore a tunic which was an outer garment of material with holes cut out for the head, the arms. And because it was a loose-fitting garment, it could be a hindrance or a danger in hand-to-hand combat. So to protect against this danger, the tunic would be cinched up and tucked in to a heavy leather belt. Girding the loins for a soldier was a mark of preparedness. Tunic would be secure. The soldier would be free to move unencumbered. The mark of preparedness for a disciple of Christ is truth. Paul says, having girded your loins with truth demonstrates our readiness for war. On the one hand, it certainly refers to objective truth. During the the, uh, teaching time and the the play this week, there were many references to um, absolute truth, okay? which is absolutely true for all people, past, present, and future. So knowing God's truth is essential as we battle against Satan's schemes. Without it, we're subject to being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Um, Ephesians 4.14. At the same time, absolute truth, but at the same time, the word that's used in the text for truth indicates the quality or state of being real or genuine, often in the sense of visible and verifiable reality, demonstrated by facts, actual events, or proven character. So on the one hand, it can mean knowing the truth, and on the other hand, it can mean living the truth, living the truth living a life of integrity that is consistent with God's truth. 
Jesus prayed for his disciples when he said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So God's, uh, John 17, 17. So God's word is objectively true, and we are sanctified, made holy, prepared for battle by it. Okay? The second piece of armor, the primary protective armor for a Roman soldier, was the breastplate. Breastplate was a sleeveless piece of armor that covered the entire torso. It was often made of heavy leather with pieces of metal sewn in. It could also be made of metal that was hammered or molded to fit the soldier's body. And the breastplate protected the vital organs, such as the heart, the lungs, the intestines. Okay, it was to protect all of that. The Jews believed that the heart represented the mind and the will, while the bowels were considered the seat of emotions. Okay? The mind and the emotions are where the most insidious of Satan's attacks are targeted. The mind and the emotions. Satan wants to cloud our minds with lies and false doctrine. He wants to cloud our emotions by tempting us to worship the idols of this world. And on the surface, we might think that the righteousness that's referred to is the imputed righteousness of Christ that's credited to us in our salvation. And while I don't believe that is the case here, and I'll explain why, it is closely related. It is closely related. We can't put on that which God has already dressed us with. All right? We're already dressed in His imputed righteousness. The imputed righteousness of Christ is something that we possess into eternity. And while it protects us from hell, it doesn't necessarily protect us from the attacks of the evil one. We know and, and we're warned that those will come, right? That's why Paul commands, put on the breastplate of righteousness. I believe that the righteousness being referred to is a practical righteousness that's lived out in obedience to God's Word. This is how they're connected. Imputed righteousness makes practical righteousness possible, but only obedience to Lord makes practical righteousness a reality. Okay? That's why Paul said, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own practical righteousness because Christ Jesus has made me his own imputed righteousness. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Third piece of armor is the shoes. The shoes. The standard issue shoe for a Roman soldier was called a, a calga. Calga. And calga were a heavy duty, thick soled, open work boot. And the sole of the shoes were equipped with hobnails, which were short nails with a thick head used to provide traction. When I ran cross country back in high school, I had, several, I had different spikes that I would screw into my shoes for every conceivable terrain that I might run on. They ranged from long, vicious-looking, deadly spikes 
for soft, wet grass. I say it that way because I literally had a guy cut my shoe in half in a race with those spikes. Um, to very short nubs for, for concrete or for a track. But for a Roman soldier, it was the same thing. The purpose of the hobnails was to provide excellent traction so that the soldier could stand firm in the battle. Paul says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, verse 15. The word readiness is translated as prepared in the NASB. The disciple of Christ is to be ready or to be prepared at all times for the devil's attacks. And the gospel of peace refers to the good news that those who are in Christ are at peace with God. They are at peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And when our shoes are put on with the readiness of the gospel of peace, we can stand firmly in the assurance of God's love, knowing that he will fight for us as we stand for him. And we can stand with our feet rooted firmly on solid ground, knowing that by His power we shall not, shall not be moved. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans eight, thirty-seven to 39. Fourth piece of armor is the shield of faith. Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, Verse 16. The shield referred to is a thurios. And it's interesting studying the text, looking at the Greek words. You know, we, we see the word shield and we just think shield. We see the word sword and we just think sword. But if you actually look at the actual words that are used in the Greek in this passage, they're specific weapons and specific descriptions of um, shields and more. It's a pretty, pretty um, cool study. Um, the shield referred to is a thurios, which is about two and a half feet wide and four and a half feet high. And the shield would have been made out of wood and covered with either metal or leather, and it was designed to cover most of the body of a soldier. And it was carried by those on the very front line. The Roman army was the most fearsome army ever assembled in history up to that point. And the soldiers would stand shoulder to shoulder in formation with their shields held in front of them. And those in the center, those that were behind, would hold their shields above their heads. And in that way, the the army literally resembled a turtle. It resembled a turtle, and they were virtually impenetrable. Most arrows, flaming or otherwise, would hit harmlessly upon the shield, again, either in front or overhead. So when Paul refers to the shield of faith, he's referring to a deep and abiding trust in God, a faith in Jesus Christ alone, which secures our salvation, a reliance on God alone for our daily provision and protection. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him, Hebrews 11.6. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God made flesh. He is infinitely powerful and absolutely dependable. He intercedes at the right hand of the Father for those who are his. Because of these truths, because Jesus Christ is who he is, God in the flesh, and because he is who he says he is, and he's interceding to the Father right now on your behalf, our faith can never fail. Our faith can never fail. The flaming darts of the evil ones are the myriad temptations that come our way. Every temptation, either directly or indirectly, is a temptation to doubt God, to doubt His Word. In the garden, the serpent tempted Eve with the Genesis 3 attack when he asked in verse 1, did God really say, did God really say, God's Word is clear. Yes, he did. Our problem is rarely understanding the word. It's obeying it. I was talking, I was sharing with the discipleship class two weeks ago, and I brought up a, a friend. We were talking about the word of God, and, and uh, the word of God is authoritative, and it's inerrant, and it's clear, and, and all that. And we were talking specifically about the clarity of Scripture. And I said a quote from a dear friend of mine um, who uh, just turned 85 a couple weeks ago. And uh, what, I, what he used to say was, my problem isn't with the 5% of Scripture that I, I don't understand. My problem is with the 95% that I do understand and don't obey. Right? And how, much, how many of us think that way? We doubt God. We doubt that His Word is true. We doubt His commands. All sin comes from a failure to act in faith to who God is and what He has revealed in His Word. With the shield of faith, a deep and abiding trust in God, we can extinguish the attacks that come from the father of lies. Fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation. The helmets were made of thick leather with metal plates, and some of them were molded metal. And many of them had cheek pieces to help protect the face. You've all seen the pictures of a Roman soldier with the distinctive cheek pieces. And obviously, the purpose of the helmet was to protect the head from injury, especially in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. Often, Satan's attacks are aimed at the head. We did a, uh, at the end of each night, we did a, a little summary of what was taught, and it's in our script that we use, and it's a new edition. I actually like the edition a lot. But on the night that we talked about the hel helmet of salvation, I asked the kids first to wave to me, and then to take their hand and put it over one ear, so they did. And then I asked them to put it over the, uh, the other ear, so they did. The battle was between there. The battle was between there. That's what we taught the kids this week. Um, Satan's attacks are aimed at the head, often aimed at the head. He plants seeds of discouragement and doubt. He's called the accuser of the brethren for a reason. He points to our failings, 
our unconfessed sin and to what we believe might be unanswered prayer. His goal is for us to lose confidence, lose confidence in the love and the care of our Heavenly Father. The antidote for discouragement and doubt is the rock-solid assurance of our salvation. When Paul says to take the helmet of salvation, he's not talking about receiving Christ as Savior. Again, he's talking to the full armor of God is equipped by believers, okay? The command to put on the full armor of God is to, uh, and engage in the battle was given to those who are already in Christ. The moment of salvation has already taken place. Rather, the command is to take the helmet of salvation is a command to wear that salvation as protection in the battle. There's a past and a present and a future aspect to our salvation. In the past, we're declared justified the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In the present, we are being sanctified, made holy as we walk in the Spirit and become more and more free from the power of sin in our lives. And in the future, our salvation is secure as we will be glorified in Him. And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. And this future hope is the strength of this piece of armor. It's the future hope of glory that gives us the strength to persevere in the present, right? Children of God, we can not only be assured of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, but that blessed assurance empowers us to fight the battle with total confidence that the Lord will accomplish His will in us and through us. Final piece of armor. The only offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit. The word that's used in the Greek is, Greek is makaira. Now the, again, specific weapon. The makaira was the common sword carried by Roman soldiers and used for hand-to-hand combat. It varied in length from, and this surprised me, six inches to about 18 inches. It was not a huge broadsword that was waved around indiscriminately, hacking whatever happened to be in its way. It was actually more like a dagger that needed to be used with precision. Again, six to 18 inches long. Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit, meaning its origin is the Holy Spirit. And he adds a divine interpretation by saying directly that this sword is the Word of God. Okay, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The word that's used for word is not the general knowledge usually associated with the word logos, but the more specific knowledge of individual words or statements associated with the word rima. In the battle for truth, we are to use precision that comes by knowledge, study, and understanding of specific truths. We are to do the work of ministry. We are to do the work of study. We are to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, hear this part, rightly handling the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, is first a defensive weapon. Okay, it's an offensive weapon, certainly. We'll talk about that. But it's a defensive weapon. When the devil's attacks come, the sword can deflect and can parry those attacks. 
The parry must be made with precision at the exact spot where the attack is being made. That's what Jesus did in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan. Three times the devil tempted Christ. Three times Jesus responded with the Word of God as an answer to the devil's promises. He deflected the attack at the, or he parried the attack at the point where that attack was made. We must do the same. The sword is also an offensive weapon. The writer of Hebrews says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews four twelve to 13 The Word of God has the power to transform the coldest and most sinful heart. Has a power to transfer one from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. Romans 10.17 When the Word of God is proclaimed, when it's wielded with precision, it has the power to transform lives. Paul ends his description of the whole armor of God by talking about prayer. He says this, Praying at all times and in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, which, by the way, begins mid-sentence. Okay, so he's talking about the armor and then immediately goes into prayer. That's not insignificant. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Verses 18 to 20. We know that we are in a spiritual battle. The conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness is very real. We are at war. We are at war. The saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. The realities of warfare tend to drive even the most hardened, self-sufficient soldier to their knees, looking for something, anything, outside of themselves. But one who has put on the whole armor of God is already a disciple of Christ, by definition. He or she knows exactly to whom they ought to pray. Prayer is the vehicle, hear this, prayer is the vehicle that activates the whole armor of God. One great practice when you know you're entering a spiritual battle, and even if you don't, is to pray through this passage as you put on each piece of armor. There isn't anything magical or mystical about that. By praying through Ephesians 6, you are acknowledging and appropriating the promises of God. You are standing strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Verse 10. Paul says that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is a form of worship where our prayers are both enabled by and in alignment with the Spirit of God. 
But the hour is coming, it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 23-24. So when we pray in the spirit according to the will of God, okay, so that's, that's what praying in the spirit is. Praying in the spirit according to His will, He intercedes on our behalf. He intercedes. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 26 and 27. If you look closely at the text, in those verses 18 to 20, you'll see again repetition, repetition that is helpful. We are to pray at all times with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints, right? In other words, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Paul concludes with a request for prayer. Not that he would be released from prison. You know, think about that. He's, he's, again, he's writing from a Roman prison to the Ephesian, likely chained to a guard. Um, he doesn't pray that he would be released from prison. Rather, he asks for prayer that God would give him the courage to proclaim the mystery of the gospel even more boldly. Think about that in the context of the spiritual armor. We are to, to take, put on the whole armor of God in order to stand for the kingdom of God, to stand firm, right? And when the attacks come, such as the, um, the apostle to the Gentiles being imprisoned, what is his request? Not get me out of here, but how can I continue the fight? How can I be even more bold in the proclamation of the gospel? His request is clearly that he be empowered to engage in the battle. God is faithful, and he's given us everything that we need to stand firm for him. The enemy is real. The enemy is formidable, but God has given us his own armor to wear in the, in the war. I didn't even touch, because of how much I tried to get into one message, I didn't even touch on the Old Testament um, references and the armor of God, that this is Yahweh's armor and the Messiah's armor, and there, it, the references are through it. I didn't even touch on that. But God has given us His own armor to wear in the war. He's given us the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes fitted with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and most importantly, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray.
Father, once again, we, we thank you for the, the week that we had and that this message that uh, was shared today is um, in various forms the message that was uh, both shared and reinforced in everything that we did this week to the kids. Father, I pray that, uh, that each and every one of them would come to faith in you, but that they would don the, the whole armor of God. Lord, that they would be able to stand firm in the battle, the battle that most certainly will come against them. Father, we pray that for us as well, Father, as we, uh, as we hear um, clearly from your word. Father, I pray that each one of us be able to engage fully and proactively um, with intentionality in the battle, not to shirk away, not to avoid the battle, not to throw in the white flag, wave the white flag, but Lord, to truly engage um, and live according to your truth that you've clearly revealed to us. Father, help us to understand, help us to, to live a life consistent with what we believe. Father, uh, we thank you. We give you all the praise and the glory for who you are and what you have done in the church, um, especially in this last week with our children. Lord, may you strengthen them as they grow in you. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. So it's fitting, Dan, with Paul's benediction from, to the Ephesians, which is only three verses after all this. So, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. Go in his peace. Amen.